who speaks, open our ears that we might listen for your voice calling to us through scripture, that we might understand your call upon our lives, that we might enter into the love you offer us through your Son, our Lord. Amen. The Psalter is read and is found in the hymnal, number 854 and 855. We'll be reading it responsibly. O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. On my tongue, O Lord. You know it all together. You pursue me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for you are fearful and wonderful. Wonderful are your works. You know me very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my uniform substance. In your book were written the days that were formed for me every day before they came into being. How profound to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. The reading from the Bible is from Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6. Please stand as you are able for the reading of the word. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God, when Abithar was high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
And now hear these words from the book of 1 Samuel. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. This is one of those sermons where the focus has changed two or three times over the week. So instead of part Eli, part Samuel, it probably would be better titled Samuel because of Eli. Now, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities begins with that famous uh, phrase. We know it, don't we? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. This is much like the beginning of the Old Testament story today. Our story begins acknowledging that there is corrupt leadership in some of the temple priests. And it ends, though, with a young man mentored by Eli, a seasoned servant of God, who in the midst of corruption hears the word of the Lord, which is a beginning of hope and renewal. We're told that the word of the Lord was very rare. Visions of God were not widespread. This was not because God did not want to offer the visions or offer the word. <clears throat> it was because of the wickedness of two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. They were sons of Eli. They were wicked. The people depended upon the temple priests to provide God's word to them. They depended upon the temple priests to share God's vision for them. And so there was no room in their lives, though, it being filled with selfishness and greed. Now, Eli knew about this. He knew what his sons were doing. He said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. Eli's sons, they ignore their father. And they continue to serve themselves instead of serving the flock to which they have been appointed. But it's going to do more than, uh, take more than a couple of wayward priests to keep God's word quiet. So where Eli was not successful with his children, he seemed to be pretty successful with Samuel. It says that Samuel, under the tutelage of Eli, grew both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. 
Now, we don't know a great deal about Samuel at this point. Some theologians speculate he was about 12 years old. We do know he had a faithful mother. His mother, Hannah, placed Samuel in the care of the priest Eli to be raised in the faith, to be trained as a priest. And we know that while Samuel was away from home in his studies, Hannah, his mother, she was faithful to visit him. The scripture tells us that during Samuel's course of study, as I've already said, he grew in stature and favor with God and with the people. But this is all we know up to this point. So here's where we might wonder, why does God choose a 12-year-old boy to hear the word that should be heard by the temple priests? And I'm confident that it wasn't just because Samuel was innocent, not just because he was not tainted with greed and self-indulgence. I believe it had a lot to do with Eli. Because of Eli, Samuel was ripe to hear God's word. Because of how Eli cared and nurtured and instructed Samuel in the faith, Samuel was prepared to hear God's word. Samuel helped, uh, Eli helped Samuel be ready to hear God's word with the ear of his heart. Now, we all need Sam, Eli's in our life. We need people to help us listen with the ear of our heart. To be sure, the priest Eli was not perfect, not by a long shot. For some reason, he didn't seem to be a very good dad. And we know that he didn't protect the people of Shiloh, where the temple was, from what his sons were doing to them. However, we do know he was a good man, and he tried to be a faithful priest. Where Eli couldn't teach his sons how to live in the love of God, he was somehow able to help Samuel experience God's love and learn how to live faithfully. Now, Eli's love and care for Samuel offers us a picture of how important the institution of the temple was. And in turn, Eli provides us with a picture, a picture of how important the institution of the church is. Eli was a priest in the organization and administration of the temple. And we, who are priests to one another, as we know the priesthood of the believers, we are part of the institution of the church organized to be God's people in the world. Now here's the deal. North Americans do not, like, do not like institutions very much. In fact, several recent studies have documented that America continues to lose trust in institutions from government to finance to religion. Well, Eli the priest of the temple at Shiloh represents an institution, and he is a symbol for people who gather regularly in temples and churches across the world. But it's easy to see why we might lose faith in institutions. You see, before anything becomes an institution, it was first a movement. And there is excitement and a sense of adventure and a movement. And it just can't be replicated in institution. A movement usually begins with some charismatic figure like Jesus. But then the movement eventually begins to find some foundation and some maturity. And the excitement is just not the same as it was in the beginning. There's still excitement there if we choose to embrace it, but it's different. It's sort of like the institution of marriage. The love of newlyweds is not the same as, lo as the love of couples who have journeyed decades with one another. There's still love, hopefully deeper love, but it's different than that exciting rush of love that brought them together in the first place. Now, too often I think we're, we're quick to critique the institutional churches having no excitement or passion. To be sure, we deserve some of that critiquing. But the truth is that the movement of the early church 
began growing into an institution so that the love of God was able to be shared more effectively in both spiritual and tangible ways. The early church established offices like deacons and elders and bishops to help with this. Those offices, they were to help empower the laity to worship and to, to pray and to read the scriptures. And uh, they were to help the laity live into the ministry of the church. Now, we see the importance of the institution of the temple in verse 7 of this passage. Hear it again. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. And so, we have Eli. Eli, with all of his shortcomings, with all of his failures, he still knows what to say and what to do in the life of the temple. So, he helps Samuel hear the word of God for his life. The temple system was not perfect, far from it. The history of the institutional church has not been perfect through the years, far from it. But when listening to this Old Testament story, we can come to some appreciation of who we are as the people of God called out in church. Now, when we read this Old Testament story, more than likely, we like to identify with one of the characters, don't we? And so usually we identify with, with Samuel. Um rather than Eli. We don't have a lot to say about Eli, do we? Except maybe he was a bad dad. Okay? But if we look at it this way, we really shortchange ourselves. Because you see, institutions like the temple and the church are means of grace. And in fact, though it may not be impossible, it's hard to accomplish things that begin in a movement without the movement becoming an institution. Most of us began our lives in an institution, didn't we? We got born in a hospital. And most of us get married in the church most. We get buried in an institution through the church. And churches, we have begun institutions like schools and universities, hospitals and hospices, Habitat for Humanity, Rise Against Hunger. However, the church's main gift as an institution is to provide place and space for us to learn how to worship God. We're in the faith community. We are trained and prepared to listen for God's word with the, the ear of our hearts. It's a place where we're taught to pray and read scriptures, to learn how to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a place where we learn repentance and forgiveness, where we learn how to love well and to be compassionate. In the church, we learn to see the vulnerable and hurting and then to act on their behalf. My guess is that it is an institution where you first came to hear the word of the Lord. It could have been in a summer camp, vacation Bible school, short-term missions, campus ministry, or maybe in corporate worship, Sunday school, small groups, Bible studies, choir, other Christian formation gatherings. Jesus instituted that wonderful gift that we're going to participate in in a moment, Holy Communion. It's food and strength for our journey. But before receiving the bread and the cup today, you're going to hear the words of institution. On the night he gave himself for us, he took bread and he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take this, eat it, and remember me. So I'm thankful for the church where disciples of Jesus can gather and grow in faith and where we can be mentored and then where we can mentor others in the faith. Now we adults, parents, grandparents, and others, who care for children, we're responsible for our children. We have a responsibility to make sure they are brought up in the ways of the Lord, like Hannah did with Samuel. 
Now, I know we don't like to make our children do things, but responsibility doesn't always feel good, does it? But the seeds we plant are powerful. Anne Lamont, in her book, Traveling Mercies, she writes, I make my son Sam go to church because I can. I outweigh him about 75 pounds. But she says, that's only part of it. The main reason is that I want to give him what I found in the world, which is to say, a path and a light to see by. People with a deep sense of spirituality follow a brighter light than the glimmer of their own candle. They are a part of something beautiful. Our funky little church, she says, is filled with people who are working for peace and freedom, who are out there on the streets and inside praying, and they are at home writing letters, and they are at shelters with giant platters of food. Now, I'm sure Anne Lamont's son was not always crazy about going to church. But he will grow up one day. He'll make his decision whether he'll claim the church as his own or not. But he'll make a decision based on a lived experience that he had in the life of the church. The institutional church provides a space and place where the important questions of life are brought forth, where they can be nurtured from infancy to some maturity. There is a universal question for all of us. It's a question during this time of year. I'm sure that high school graduates and college graduates uh, have that in the back of their mind. The question is, to what will I devote my life? In the life of the church, the Word of God calls us, and the Holy Spirit works in us to struggle with those universal questions like that. Preaching professor Kay Northcutt writes, For me, the question to what I would devote my life to began one morning when I was nine years old. It was Saturday and it was springtime. Mom had us up before 7 a.m. Dad was running vacuum. My two sisters and I were in charge of dusting and emptying trash cans, stripping the beds, cleaning the, mirror, the, the rooms and the, shining the mirrors. She says she was done and about to escape into freedom when her mother hollered from the other end of the house, Kaylin, run the compost out through the compost pile. She says, my mom was the queen of compost way before it was cool. The compost was a collection of slimy uh, mess, and it had to be carried across three acres to the back of our property. And as Kay walked past her mother on the way out of the back door with that compost and its aroma, <clears throat> Kay said, it might interest you to know that my best friend Audrey and her three brothers are this very minute watching the monkeys on TV and eating sugar pots by the handfuls straight out of the box, which is what normal kids do on a Saturday morning. And then she said, I had the temerity to say, I didn't ask to be born into this family. And Kay's mother, never in a loss of words, replied, that's right, you didn't. God and I invited you to be here to make the world a better place, and that takes hard work, so get to the compost pile. <laughs> now, in the life of the church, the institutional church, at one time or another, we may find ourselves, for various reasons, not wanting to be a part of it. But prayerfully and hopefully, we'll hear the church respond faithfully, saying, that's right, you may not want to be here, but God and I invited you here to make this world a better place. It requires hard work and lots of love. So together, let's get to work. If you're not involved in the life and work of this church beyond Sunday worship, I invite you to find a place, a place where you can study the scripture,
pray, where you can learn of repentance and forgiveness, where you can be made uncomfortable when those who are suffering receive them and learn how to speak for them and act for them. Where we can experience joy, we can experience friendship, where we can have conversations with each other, maybe like Eli and Samuel had, where we can learn to listen for God's word and grow in stature and favor with God and with each other here at Alders Gate. You can discover these many and diverse ways to be involved on our church website or literature that's in the narthex, or you can ask any of the staff. And those of us who are involved, let us be faithful to invite others into the rich fullness of the ministry and missions of this church. Eugene Peterson said, no life of faith can be lived privately. There must be overflow into the lives of others. So just as Eli's life overflowed into the life of Samuel, may we, as those Samuels in the church today, allow our lives to overflow into the lives of others, where they can come to know and experience the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our communion hymn you will find on the 